0: Hi, I'm Jack, and this is Tuck In, We're Rolling, Queer Hollywood Stories. This week, we're going to be talking about James Dean, the controversy surrounding his sexuality, and why his legacy seems to resonate into today. Apologies again for this week's episode being late. Uh, for those of you who don't follow the podcast Tumblr or Facebook, I went back to Connecticut last weekend to visit my family, and my mom's cat threw up on all of my notes. And I guess that's what I get for leaving them out, but, you know, once I got home, I had to restart my note-taking process and go back to work immediately, so that's kind of why this is so late. Um, And even though this is technically last week's episode, I've decided that this will be the only episode I'll record. Um, Again, I apologize, but in about two weeks, I'll be in Los Angeles visiting a friend and probably taking a lot of selfies with the Hollywood sign, so I won't have anything written or recorded until after I get home. But you know, at least you guys can expect a lot of great photos on the blog, right? Right. So let's just dive on in now. James Dean. He's made it onto AFI's Top 50 Actors list at number 18, and he's long remembered as the guy that made three movies and then died in a fiery car wreck. And, you know, if we're being honest, I think the car wreck is probably what makes people remember him so fondly and why he got a a spot on that Top 50 Actors list. You know, I think about these stars that died young, and not Monty Clift young, but tragically Marilyn Monroe young. And they might not have done anything really worthwhile, but it's the potential that people mourn. James Dean was 24 when he died, and he had only made a, a scant handful of movies. And even Marlon Brando said that the loss was just tremendous. And his movies were were good too. Um, I had to watch Rebel Without a Cause for a class I took in high school called um, What Happened in and to the Sixties. It was a fascinating class. Uh, we were watching it to sort of explore the way that young people felt and acted in the 50s after World War II and how this kind of set the stage for the 60s. Uh, So I watched the movie, I wrote my reactions to it in a little journal that we had to keep for class. And you know, I loved it, I'm not gonna lie. I think back then I must have been about 17 and I was really just starting to cultivate this love of golden age Hollywood and classic cinema And I remember being really excited to get a chance to watch Rebel Without a Cause. But, you know, it kind of slipped right out of my consciousness. I generally don't enjoy the legacy of tragically dead-before-their-time actors um, because I think that people fixate on, like, the gruesome ways that they died as opposed to the actors themselves. And, yeah, I guess it really goes back to that mourning of the loss of potential thing. But I also think that James Dean getting onto AFI's Top 50 while Monty Clift isn't even given an honorable mention is kind of bullshit. Monty didn't die in his car crash, so he never reached the legendary status that Dean did. I'm getting a little off topic, but um, anyway. People remember Dean, and they love and cherish his movies, and they really do fixate on his short life, but they tend to forget what he was actually like And from what I've read, it wasn't exactly very pretty. James Dean was born on February 8th, 1931 in Marion, Indiana. His family moved to Santa Monica after his father gave up farming to be a dental technician. Um, And he was an only child, very close with his mother by all counts. Uh, But she died of uterine cancer when he was nine and his father sent him back to Indiana to live with his aunt and uncle. And now here's where things kind of start to get a little weird. He meets a pastor named James DeWeird and they get very close. A lot of people have gone back and pointed out that DeWeird is actually the one who got Dean hooked on fast cars and even acting. But history is on the fence about whether or not DeWeird abused Dean or if they had a consenting relationship in Dean's later teenage years. Um, But either way, Dean supposedly told Elizabeth Taylor that he had been abused by a member of the clergy shortly after his mother's death. Um, after he graduated from high school, he took his dog Max out to California, and eventually he ended up dropping out of UCLA to act, uh, though at first he could barely get cast in commercials. Around 1951, he went to New York to study at the Actors Studio, which, if you'll remember, is the same place where Marlon Brando got his start. Uh, he did a lot of television work, and then finally in 1953, Elia Kazan cast him in East of Eden after specifically requesting a Brando type. He made his last movie, Giant, in 1955, though it didn't come out until 1956, the year after he had passed away. He died on September 30, 1955 at the age of 24 from injuries sustained during a car crash on his way to a drag race. Interestingly, they named the stretch of highway he died on for him, which I personally think is a little morbid, even for my taste, and I used to be a funeral director. But hey, to each their own, I guess. So James Bean, Dean has been described as someone who slept his way to the top. Very famously, he and Marilyn Monroe actually did have a fling. Uh, he said he wanted to marry her, and I guess they actually had plans to do it uh, before they realized what a bad match they would actually be in a rare moment of self-awareness for the both of them. Besides Monroe, he's said to have had affairs with Liz Taylor, Joan Crawford, J- and Judy Garland. Uh, but besides his female conquests, he's also rumored to have had affairs with uh, Marlon Brando, Paul Newman, Steve McQueen, Rock Hudson, and Spencer Tracy. The author, Darwin Porter, says of Dean, he was difficult, selfish, and insecure, but he made love to some of Hollywood's greatest beauties. Interestingly, Ilya Kazan says about Dean, he was a little nuts. Maybe a lot nuts. So it's really interesting to me that here's this guy who's remembered and beloved for the three movies that he made, but everyone around him is kind of like, uh, guys, he's sort of crazy. Natalie Wood, who co-starred with him in Rebel, uh, said that he was into hurting his partners and also being hurt. Uh, not to kink shame, we don't do that on this show, but after he and Spencer Tracy hooked up, he stole all of Tracy's cash in his wallet. And last episode, I mentioned that the relationship between Brando and Dean was juicy, but it was kind of more fascinating than anything else. Now, again, I can't say that any of this is real or fictional, and this is one of those stories that seems like it might be a little stretched, if you know what I mean. But there is a rumor out there that Dean and Brando had a dom-sub relationship with Brando acting as the dominant one. So this story is really very detailed, and, you know, I've never really figured out if lies are overly simple or overly complicated. But the story goes that James Dean was absolutely in love with Brando, going so far as to follow him around and wait outside his apartment for attention or sex. Uh, Brando used to make Dean watch him have sex with strangers as some part of a mind game that Brando played with him. Uh, Brando claims to have met Dean on the set of East of Eden in 1954, which is the same story that the Mizruchi book uh, tells. I mentioned on the blog, uh, this book was actually sanctioned by Brando's estate, which might account for why it left some of the seedier details of his life out. In James Dean, Tomorrow Never Comes, Darwin Porter says that they actually met back in 1949 when Brando came back from Paris and visited the actor's studio in New York. Now, the dates don't exactly match up. Officially, Dean wasn't involved in the actor's studio until 1951, But there's a chance he was hanging around, and given how big a fan of Brando's he was, he might have made an excuse to visit so he could see his idol. People who were close to the two of them, including Tennessee Williams, have claimed that the two were definitely an item, uh, though Brando was really not very nice to Dean, rubbing it in his face when he was out sleeping with other people and denying that they were even friends after Dean's death. So now we have two sides of a story. Brando claiming that he and Dean were barely friends, though he admits that Dean was particularly fixated on him. And people close to Dean or the two of them claiming that they had sadomasochistic sex on a frequent and regular basis. I think with this story, as with most stories, the truth probably lies somewhere in the middle. Dean had a lot of serious girlfriends and Brando had that appetite that we talked about before. Uh, Dean also had the tendency to use the people he was seeing or sleeping with to further his career. And if we think about early 50s Brando, you know, peak classic film Brando as it were, then we're talking about someone who had the ability to make someone's career. Dean only got the roles in Rebel Without a Cause in East of Eden because Brando turned them down and the directors wanted the next best thing. And Dean really wanted Brando's mantle. Do I think that Dean latched onto Brando in a very unhealthy way? Oh, yeah. Do I think that Brando played mind games with Dean because he was an egomaniac? To an extent, probably, yeah. When I talk about the trio of Brando, Dean, and Montgomery Clift, I'm talking about three people who were really into themselves. I mean, mirrors all over the place looking out for number one and number one only levels of selfishness. Combined with Brando's admitting that he was into men at some point and Dean being described as an omnisexual, I definitely think that those two had some kind of relationship beyond what Brando admits to. After Dean died, I think people kind of wanted to forget the bad stuff about him and just remember the good things. I have this feeling that uh, Brando maybe wanted to distance himself from it for whatever reason, whether it was because he was truly distraught that someone he supposedly loved or at least had a relationship with had died or because he wanted Dean's memory to go on without being colored by a sordid affair, or, you know, even if he just wanted to put it all behind him and get on with his affair with Rock Hudson. I I don't know. This is all conjecture. But now, I kind of want to pick up a thread I teased out a few weeks ago in our Cary Grant episode, this tendency to forget the bad about people after they've died and hold them up on high pedestals despite being really, truly terrible. And Cary Grant was from a different time in Hollywood, most definitely. The money was pouring in. The studios had unlimited power. The Hayes Code was still a very much a thing. Uh, there was, you know, this was the time when the studios had a roster of stars and they just picked one when they were making a new movie and said, come on now, this is your new movie. Go, go, go on and make this. Uh, and Grant was actually one of the first people to reject the studio system, which is why he never got an Oscar. Uh, but that's a story for another time. Dean was coming up when the studios had to compete with television, and he was on TV for a little while. Uh, Fixers were definitely still running around making all the bad things go away, but the code was slipping and the studios just didn't have the same kind of hold that they once did. But they were both people who notoriously had bad tempers, treated the people around them pretty poorly, and were known to be violent towards their romantic partners. Why then do we continue to look back at these two and a lot of others like them? through these rose-colored glasses with grant i think it's definitely nostalgia uh, there's this there's enough time between the peak of his fame and now that people just want to remember the goofy grinning guy from arsenic and old lace or you know maybe they're diehard hitchcock fans and they won't hear a bad word spoken about him With Dean, though, I really think it comes back to this view of him as, like, a lost boy who died too young and never got a chance to be the next Brando, which I'm sure Brando was a little relieved about, regardless of whatever kind of relationship the two of them had. And, you know, going back to that whole parallel between today's actors and Dean and Brando, uh, people really think he was something special, and I'm not denying that he was. But I mean, think about it. My very good friend James Franco and the Internet's collective crush Ryan Gosling aspire to be what exactly? Vain, selfish and mean caricatures of masculinity? Everyone is so focused on the brooding, mysterious, and handsome part that they forget about the terrible things that come with it. You know, the addictive personalities, the disregard for other people, the recklessness. And maybe that's why I find some of the contemporary stars I called out in my last episode so unpalatable. Whatever their level of talent and whatever they're doing or have done they're still trying desperately to be people that maybe, you know, uh, were kind of shitty. And I guess that you can argue that someone can be brooding and mysterious and a a talented actor without being abusive or even just obnoxious. And you can admire someone's talent without admiring the selfishness. But I mean, come on now. Do you think that someone like Christian Bale ever sat down and thought about the dichotomy of famous persona versus intimate personality as it pertains to Hollywood in the golden age? Maybe, maybe James Franco has, but if he wrote that paper, he probably would have gotten a D on it. There's this thing that I haven't really figured out yet about celebrities, and it's where to draw that line. The question of, when does this person do something so heinous that I stop supporting their work? How many times does Mark Ruffalo have to talk over queer voices when he does things like cast Matt Bomer as a trans woman or think he understands the struggle because, you know, again, he kissed Matt Bomer that one time? Like, do I stop watching movies with Jeremy Renner because he refused to apologize for making shitty comments about Scarlett Johansson? And what do I say about Chris Evans because he apologized for those same shitty comments? And why did I flat out refuse to watch Manchester by the Sea because Casey Affleck is an abuser who got away with it, but I watched Chinatown even though Roman Polanski also abused an underage girl. And you know, I'm coming at this from a place of like, the classic movies are history now and what happened is what happened. But for God's sake, why is it still happening? When we watch Rebel Without a Cause and don't have the context to know that Natalie Wood felt uncomfortable on set with James Dean because he was a violent person? Aren't we doing a disservice to not only Natalie Wood, but all the woman, women who've ever had to sit in a room with someone that's made them uncomfortable? Aren't we, you know, kind of setting a precedent for this kind of thing? And And maybe context is the key to this question. We really can't just blindly consume media without context. Like, we can't ignore the things that have happened in the past and i've said that before on this show when we ignore the fact that james dean probably hit pierre Angeli, and that hollywood used to cast white people as people of color or even that fucking gone with the wind i hate that movie so much made people of color stars and then hollywood refused to let them into the academy awards to collect their oscars we're denying that it even happened And maybe knowing and understanding the context can help us navigate away from making the same mistakes that people made back in the early years of Hollywood or that, you know, James Franco continues to make. Uh, I mean, you know, not yet, obviously. Mark Ruffalo, as far as I know, never formally apologized for casting Matt Bomer as a trans woman. And Casey Affleck got an Academy Award uh, while getting away with sexual abuse. But, you know, maybe people like you and me can use these moments to propel ourselves into demanding better. You know, not just from Hollywood, but from the people we interact with on a daily basis. Thank you so much for listening to Tuckin' We're Rolling, Queer Hollywood Stories. This week's episode was written, researched, edited, and recorded by me, Jack Segretto. You can find a transcript of this episode and all of our episodes, along with movie and book recommendations, fun facts and photos on our Tumblr, tuckinpodcast.tumblr.com. You can also give us a like on Facebook at facebook.com slash tuckinpodcast. We accept messages on both of these platforms, so please feel free to shoot us any suggestions for show topics and comments that you might have. Uh, We put out new episodes uh, kind of every Wednesday, and you can listen to us on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. So please don't forget to rate and subscribe to us. We will be back next week with an episode about Montgomery Clift and the way age and infirmity affect how we view queer personalities. See you next time.